Beyond, and hello and welcome to another special episode of Beyond. Jonathan is away, and he sends this message to the Beyond community. Beyond, and hello everyone, my name is Jonathan Dornbush, and I am not your host for Beyond episode 610, but rest assured, your incapable hands and smooth radio voices with the stylings of Brian, Lucy, Max, and special guest Sean Layden. Just kidding. That? It's not true. Sean's not here. He probably has enough NDAs to prevent him from talking until the launch of the PS9. Anyway, hope you all enjoy this episode. Excited to talk plenty more PS5 in the weeks to come beyond. That was some quality book report charisma right there. Yeah. No, so, uh, hi, everybody. Welcome to Beyond. This is a very special episode. We always joke about how huge news breaks the day after we record the show, and lo and behold, we uh, had some huge, crazy news about the PlayStation 5, and miraculously, Jonathan couldn't be here on account of dog diarrhea, and Lucy couldn't be here on account of I don't know why. So here's Tom Marks. Hello. And Brian Altano. Hello. Thanks for thanks for actually showing up to record the podcast, guys. It's always a treat when people decide to do that. The trick is, if you don't have a dog, can't have dog diarrhea. My dog constantly has diarrhea, and I just deal with it. Well, there was a real diarrhea of news today. Yeah, so anyway, let me play that horrible noise with the child, <laughs> screaming child. Time for the news crunch. I've never done this before. This might mess it up. Do I just hit the... Is it just that? Just that? The hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> who the hell is who is doing this? Was that from Unlock? Yeah. Yeah, we're playing the wrong song. There it is. What console cr- wars are off to a bad start? <laughs> there it is. There's that horrible <laughs> series of sounds. <laughs> anyway, so the big huge news is the PlayStation 5 is called the PlayStation 5. Whoa. Uh that's yeah, so in, I don't know, the, the most sort of surprisingly anticlimactic way possible, Sony went out and had a big old interview with Wired Magazine and announced that the PlayStation 5 will be coming launch window of holiday 2020. Uh, if you do release date guesses, I will say November 6, 2020. That's from Jonathan. He wrote a bunch of stuff. He did all our, our homework for us. But uh, yeah, so they talked a bit about what we can expect. I think yeah. the big thing here is uh, controller upgrades, which... Yeah. I wasn't really expecting too much of. Well, it's hard to imagine, right? Like, it feels like in the last, at least at last generation jump, like, we've just made these tiny, tiny incremental changes to controllers. The Xbox 360 controller, Xbox One, is, like, pretty similar. Mm-hmm. DualShock 4 to DualShock 3, even pretty similar as well. Like, the touchpad, obviously, lots of new things. But, yeah, some cool, cool upgrades coming with this. Yeah. Like. Yeah, so, so they did the interview with Wired and then released, like, this sort of unceremonious, like, official blog update that was yeah. sort of just kicking around some features for their controllers, which is, like, cool, but in a year where we didn't get an E3 press conference and we aren't, I believe, getting a PSX, like... I don't... Yeah, then it's... What, like, this is... I don't... It's and, and the same thing with the Sean Layden news. They're just, yeah. like... Here's a tweet. Like I, this has been the Sony trend this year. I'm not a fan of that. I, I, no? I think that I think that I, I, okay. I think that like a lot of pomp and flair that happens at E3 is too much. We've made fun of it for years now. It should be lampooned. It's over the top. I think that like just putting out a blog post is too little. Let's find something <laughs> okay. between those worlds. Well, so I think this is this is smart in the sense that it helps people kind of keep their expectations in line. You know, this is for people like us who pay really close attention to these details. It keeps us from getting completely overhyped and be like, yeah, PlayStation 5 is going to have holograms and a VR headset built in. Uh, we're going to be like, you know, this is going to roll around. They're going to do the big official reveal. 
and it's going to be, oh, it's going to be incremental changes. Yeah. I think that's really smart because this generation leap ahead is probably not going to be that huge of a, of a mind-blowing thing. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of going to be business as usual, which I think is, is smart and safe. But that being said, we do have some details uh, about the controller upgrades. Sorry for taking too long to get to that point, but mm-hmm. haptic feedback is a big one. It's going to make you feel different terrain or different levels of resistance, like in a car or when pulling an arrow on a bow, as well as USB-C charging. This is uh, USB-C is a nice improvement, uh, a nice yeah. move up from those stupid little micro ones. I was never a fan of the micro, mm-hmm. uh, but I think the the haptic stuff is exciting because that feels very much like what we got with the uh, with the Switch Joy Cons. Yeah. Um, the, most of the third party controllers I own now, like stuff like 8BitDo is our USB-C. Mm-hmm. Um, your Nintendo Switch is USB-C. Your PlayStation 4 is micro USB-C. And then whatever that thing is that charges your move controllers that you need. That's, that's USB mini. Yeah. Which is different than micro. Now we're getting into the way Nintendo labels their handhelds um so i'm glad we're getting something kind of uniform there until xbox comes out and goes we're going back to batteries <laughs> who knows the coolest part about that haptic thing to me was the triggers that they were talking about mm-hmm. yeah. where developers will actually be able to program programmably change the tension of the trigger so like if you're pulling back a bowstring it could be really really hard to pull the trigger but if you're just like doing a gun or doing a little quick motion it could be like really really light no tension at all and that's that's like a part of controller like design and the ability for developers to manipulate your controller in a way i hadn't even really thought about before right i wonder how a forced that will be and b how easy it will be to turn off because i imagine that'll be cool for a bit but i think most people just kind of flying through stuff like i know when i played uncharted 4 there was like there's an option to go in and not do qtes for like instead of like having to mash to open a door you can just hit a button and i did that because I was like, okay, maybe this is less like, you know, I'm less of like absorbed into this world here, but I also am not sitting there like. Da, 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 da. So I don't know. I, I hope I hope that's something that's like optional, but I do hope it's something that sticks so yeah. that people who want it can use. it. I mean, it's it's gimmicky. Like it's totally a gimmicky thing, but it could also, I mean, theoretically be used creatively. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know when the Xbox One first came out, they kind of touted the uh, was like individual, you know, vibrations in in the triggers. Yeah, and then that barely got used for anything. It basically gets used by the Forza series and pretty much no other game. Yeah, and, but they use it really well. So yeah. it could be that this is one of those things where it's like maybe a couple first or second party games use this in cool ways, and then the rest of the world just sort of ignores it. Yeah, I mean, but you think about like. Uh, I mean, I have like a uh, like an iPhone Seven, which is you know years old at this point. But that whole like Touch ID thing, where, which isn't a button, but the haptics make you think it is. Yeah, like that weird that weird like mental magic of like here's just a vibration that feels like tactile interaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does that too when you're like purchasing stuff with Face ID and you like double click the button on the side and it like goes like it's just like a little thing that's not real, but it. Feels like oh, I made a purchase. I mean, what does that what does that look like when you have video gamey stuff attached to it? You know? I don't know. I mean, that could be interesting. I, I think the thing is, is like our closest reference for this is HD Rumble on Nintendo Switch. Mm-hmm. Like that's like their blog post was basically like since the dawn of man, Rumble has been the same. And it's like, well, no, it changed a little bit three years ago. Um, that's not necessarily something that gets utilized constantly. But like we, there was that stupid cow milking video game, and you know, <laughs> it, like it, the the idea of like one two switch had this thing where you could basically turn your Joy-Con and feel count the amount of marbles that were inside it, and they weren't real. 
right? There's no marbles inside there. But I imagine that like PlayStation's going to bring that into their first party territory and do that with slightly more mature stuff. Like, I don't know, see how much blood is left in a clicker's head. <laughs> Lots of options. I feel like there's going to be a an Uncharted game where it's like, how many marbles are in this box? We got to figure out how many marbles are in here. <laughs> Dang, it's, no. I, hopefully that's not the case, and hopefully it's not uh, a bunch of sort of, you know, Vita Golden Abyss clean the dust off of this thing type of puzzles. But it's, it's weird because when we held PS3 controllers for the longest time, and then we held the PS4 controller, that felt like a gigantic leap, mm-hmm. and that also like by the end of the generation, by the end of the PS3 generation, everything felt old. Right, mm-hmm. like all, the controllers felt old and tinny and hollow, and the OS was chuggy and terrible. The graphics were showing their their age. I don't really, and I've said this for like a year now, but I don't really feel like we're there yet with the PS4. Like I'm not, I I love my DualShock 4. Like I I'm not really a great controller. But then again, like it is the job of inventors and toy makers and tinkerers everywhere throughout time to take things that we thought. We're perfect and hand us better versions of them because they're smarter. Yeah, and then we hand them money because we need the new thing because it's theoretically better. Or there's Mad Cats who does the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of this stuff does, now that you mentioned money, sound like these controllers are going to get more and more expensive. Yeah. So what I'm wondering is are they going to keep the same sort of basic basic form of the DualShock 4? Yeah. Because they went back and forth, and that's become pretty much the standard for this generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's weird because I know that the by the time the sort of DualShock Three rolled around, it was sort of divisive. A lot of people would go, "Oh, it's too it's too small for my large hands," and mm-hmm. everyone loved the 361. And I feel like we're kind of at this happy medium now, where the DualShock Four is like close enough to a th- like a Xbox One controller that. People can kind of make peace with it. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that Xbox is doing really well in that space is, A, the customization options, which are really wonderful. You can hop online and design your own controller colors. And, B, the sort of way they scale to how much you really want to put into them, like the Elite controller. And I think that, like, if the PS5 launched with, A, customizable controllers, and, B, um, sort of various SKUs that scale to how much money you want to spend and how much sort of bells and whistles you want, that'd be really awesome. I think that's, like, something that they sort of missed out on. And I don't know how well stuff like the Astro controller or, like, a, a, couple, like a couple of, like, Scuff and stuff like that, there's a bunch of third parties that have, like, kind of encroached in the space of slightly more high-end versions of DualShocks, et cetera. And it would be cool if Sony just kind of grabbed that microphone and they were like, Let's let's own this. Like let's make let's make that actual let's give those options to the players so we can spend even more money like idiots. One thing I'm pretty curious about is if they're spending all this kind of energy into the the haptic feedback and the and the making just really tweaking a new controller across the board. I wonder if this is gonna be sort of extra compatible with VR stuff. Because they've been slowly building up PSVR. I know that there's that trying to find that sort of sweet spot for like there are so many PSVR games you can play with just a controller. Yeah. Uh, and I kind of, I really do appreciate that. Me too. Uh, not having to need us. I mean, that would be pretty nuts if they were like, hey, uh, you can get move controllers, but you can also just use use two DualShock 4s. I don't know, I mean, or DualShock 5s or whatever they call this thing. Like, uh, I feel like the the haptic stuff kind of really lends itself well to like, oh, you've got a thing on your face. You need that extra sort of... Uh, you know, grounded sensation to be like, oh, you're I mean, a door. And that was, that was one of the things they talked about in this Wired article, right, was that Wired got to play like a custom version of Astrobot with this haptic feedback that had like every time you walked over different terrain, it, you could tell if you were walking over metal or sand mm. or whatever the case mm-hmm. may be. So I, I like think they're, they're already thinking about that stuff, and, and I agree. I think that's a really, 
really good use of what is otherwise potentially just like a very subtle upgrade to Rumble. You can use it in a way that is really significant. Right. Well, I mean, as of as of the day the PS5 launches, the PlayStation Move controllers that we use with their flagship futuristic VR device will be two generations old. That's insane. Mm. That's insane. It's like if we still had to use like it's if if you had to use the duke every time you or like a, a Wiimote, like this this stuff is so old at this point that it just feels backwards I'm, so yeah i would like to not have any usb mini plugs in my house yeah i'm fine with moving with having a few micros <laughs> kicking around for the you know the odd you know cell phone battery or whatever but mm-hmm. like just let me get that let me get the usb c to plug in all the things too and uh anyway you got a usb c charged move controller if they have the exact like the- same thing, but like it's USB C now, we just be like, Shh, <laughs> no shut up. Yeah. <laughs> that would be not okay. That would be not okay. I agree. It charge faster though. Uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Now let's see. <laughs> uh, we also found out they're going to be 100 gig optical disc with 4K Blu-ray player disc drive, which is that's good news. Uh, Industry standard now. So yeah. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> uh, game installs will be customizable. I read somewhere that they're gonna. It's gonna be pretty mandatory, but it's nice that they're. I think it's gonna be like, do you want the super high res graphics pack, or do you want like the, you know, basically having that kind of modular options of how much space you want their ga- the games taking up. That's really good too, because that's significant in a lot of cases in terms of hard hard drive space. Like the, I think it was the the HD texture packs for mm. uh, Monster Hunter World on PC would. Make it like an over a hundred gigabyte install when it was like otherwise just like a normal one, just mm-hmm. from doing that HD texture. So doing customizable installs like that, where you can just say, "No, I don't need that." Is I like, like that. It's yeah. very nice. I, I mean, it'd be cool if you could just be like, "How much of this game? Like, are you gonna be play? Are you gonna play multiplayer?" And you're like, "No." And it's like, mm. "There's get rid of that." Then I feel right. like this 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 console. I mean, the this the size of the actual optical discs is interesting. It gives us a sort of spectrum of the amount of file sizes we'll be dealing with. If you're mostly digital like me, it's sort of irrelevant, but it also leads to the question of like, what sort of storage space will this console need at launch? I feel like I feel like a terabyte will be the absolute bare minimum they can give you, and that's kind of unprecedented for these kind of things. Like I would, I would kind of love two terabytes. Because if you look at stuff like, especially backwards compatibility, Red Dead's a 100 gig game, um, The Last of Us will be, you know, Last of Us Part Two. That's two massive discs. Like we're going to run out of space very quickly, especially if we have access to a back catalog and we start start re-downloading a bunch of PS4 games, potentially with HD texture packs and stuff like that. Like that's that's going to fly very quickly. So I think I will I will demand right now two terabytes bare minimum. <laughs> okay, that's or a, I'll still buy it. That's a bold demand. <laughs> we'll, we'll let them know. Yeah. Uh, now I'm curious here. I, I imagine. Okay, it says 4K Blu-ray player disc drive. Does that confirm it's going to play 4K Blu-rays, or is that just saying the type of media it's using? Um, I probably like, that too. Yeah. I, I imagine they they can't skip another generation of 4K. that. Would be that would be a weird move. Yeah, I wonder, also, it'd just be wonderful if they said 4K Blu-ray disc drive, and then in parentheses does not play 4K Blu-rays. Yeah. Four games only, yeah. no <laughs> movies. What's odd about that is that like since basically the dawn of PlayStation, their consoles have kind of been tethered to the frontward facing and, and revolutionary medium at the time from like, you know, CDs, DVDs, mm-hmm. Blu-rays. And then this time around they were like, no, no thanks. I mean, <laughs> I have a, I have a PS4 pro. Uh, I have an Xbox one S, which I think plays ultra HD 4k Blu-rays or it whatever. Does, yeah. Right. I don't have a 4k TV, so it's a sort of non-issue at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I wonder if they just kind of looked at like, and obviously the the, the PS3 I think was a Blu-ray player before people needed that exactly. Mm-hmm. Like it was kind of ahead of the curve. Yep. Whereas the PS2 was completely hitting that sweet spot of like DVDs, they're out now. I wonder if they just took a look at it and they're like, is it worth the licensing fees of like every you know every like 4K Blu-ray player we put out there? Do people yep. need that or enough people still just using regular HD? That's exactly it. Actually, I read that it's there's basically like a a, a cost that gets kind of inherited by mm-hmm. Sony every single time they sell something with that license. So they probably looked at it and you said like ahead of the curve, I think maybe they looked in there like we're kind of late to the party. Like it, that was sort of in a weird medi- medium area between um, the, 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 the 4k movement at the time. The thing is next gen or next year, or even the next three, four years, 8k is nothing but a buzzword. And so we don't really have like a big, like frontward facing, this is your new reason to get a new TV. Like I've had a 4K TV for like five years now. It's awesome. I love it. But I have no reason to get an 8K TV because there's no, there's not enough content to justify mm-hmm. that. And no one, like you said, no one should expect 8K to be any sort of a thing that you need or probably even want in an ex- enthusiast level for probably until the <sighs> PS6, right? Yeah. Like this generation is not. I think it's not a bold claim to say this generation is not going to be on 8K nope. at all. No, uh, I mean, it, it can do it in big air quotes, but it's not going to become a ubiquitous thing. By Maybe 8K. there's some massive leap that we are understating right now, and they'll do a mid you know, a mid generation refresh like they did this time around with the, with the pro. Yeah. But I, I honestly don't really foresee that happening. And it's also that, that gets, has to get backed up by like internet infrastructure all over the world, because that is a tremendous amount of data to stream. And so, yeah, there is real, it's a a weird arms race. Yeah. There's, Um, there's no big like format or television, uh, medium feeding this next generation. Mm -hmm. I was at CES in January and they were like, the 8k TVs are here. And it's really, it's honestly just companies trying to sort of like, just kind of stake their claim of like, hey, look, we've got one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the new TVs, like the the you know, like here's like a folding like Samsung TV. It was still 4K. You know, right. it was, and it's the 8K stuff is like, hey, this is going to be your first affordable 8K TV. But what are you going to watch on it? Well, yep. and on top of that, movies and TV and kind of that media might be different, but games, the amount of processing power it takes to render <laughs> higher resolutions is like it's what's the word I'm looking for. Uh, uh, it, it, you know what I mean? Hard. A pain in the ass? It's multiplicative in its <laughs> yeah. difficulty, not right. additive, right? Yeah. So it's not just like, oh, 4K is half as no, we're much not, to run as 8K. We're not there yet. 8K is like orders of magnitude more difficult to run than 4K also, in games. That's- I feel like anybody who's like, "What? I need 8K right now, by the time it's widely available, your eyesight will have deteriorated enough that it will be a non-issue. <laughs> yeah, That's and the, the price is- will come down. Yeah. yeah. Like, I haven't switched to 4K because my eyes are starting to go bad, and I'm like, ah, oh, just, uh, just sort of squint. It's fine. Mm-hmm. It's just, I guess 1080p is fine. No, I think 8K TVs are like for, for like rappers and, and actors and... Like- <laughs> like famous like oil princes and stuff like that like you need serious money to even throw money at that right now and there's nothing really justifying it yeah. but it's odd like if if you look at like big sort of gimmicky movements that have happened in visual mediums like television stuff like that most of them have come and gone like 3d glasses free 3d curved monitors like a lot of that stuff is basically just like that's not none of those really became industry sandals standards mm-hmm. people just want a f- big flat <laughs> gorgeous yeah. thing that they can look at mm-hmm. um and so like yeah we'll see what happens there my my prediction at this current state is that next gen will be about frame rates it'll be about locking locking all those assets into place 
in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that doesn't dip wildly, which is what we're seeing a lot of right now. And like the PS4 Pro and a lot of environments and a lot of games gave you the options to basically be like, do you want, you know, do you want frame rate or do you want graphics or which do you prefer? Um, I have a feeling like those options will become a little bit like a, a little bit stronger and that uh, they'll be less up and down dipping. So like something like Digital Foundry will basically like, have 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 a little bit of an easier time. Mm -hmm. they'll, still, they'll still be working their butts off over there. Though. Or potentially those those options will just go away and mm -hmm. it'll just yeah. be one that is graphics, frame rate, resolution all in one. Yeah, right? yeah, that'd be great. Especially just don't even think about it. Don't make the consumer think about it. Just right. present it in its perfect clarity. Mm -hmm. I'm also uh, pretty stoked about just like load times. Uh, I saw a thing about how the, I guess the SSD is going to be super fast and snappy, yep. which is great. I want that. I'm, I don't know. I want to get just back out there to get my ass kicked again if I die in a game. You know, <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, ray tracing built into a hardware level, as opposed to having like software, uh, you know, smoke and mirrors. Yeah, which is good, I guess. If you, if you, I don't. Tom, what's ray tracing? Uh, <laughs> ray tracing is basically just a different way of rendering, and this I don't know a ton about it, but like it's a different way of rendering light that is way way more realistic because you're actually mapping like the light rays, and it allows you to do things like really realistic lighting, really extremely realistic reflections, like better reflections than any game you've ever seen, pretty much, yeah. ray tracing can produce. Um, mm. Ray tracing is really kind of the cutting-edge tech that is pushing, like, graphics cards makers and PC side of things right now. Um, it is what is pushing graphics forward in terms of, like, hey, this is the next step mm. for your games, mm -hmm. because textures and that sort of thing have sort of started to plateau. Like, obviously, there's better and better and better, but lighting and that sort of those environmental effects and reflections are the next step of like right. how good can we push this um and it's really cool to see consoles and the next generation of consoles lean into this because it's something that like not a lot of games use ray tracing yet on pc and the ones that do either have performance issues or aren't fully utilizing it or you need an insanely strong pc to use it so having that Having a commitment from Sony that this is a thing that they're investing in on this next system is extremely exciting because if they can get it working and they can get the like the push behind it, it could really, really change the way games look. Yeah, oh, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm hoping this this next system is is sort of a you know iterative jump forward with hardware that allows developers plenty of room to screw around if they want, but you know isn't sort of shoehorning them into any kind of like weird uh you know like like cell processing or any yeah, kind right. of like motion control gimmick it's a sort of like hey here's here's a toolbox make cool games yeah you know? by, by all accounts and obviously fully anecdotal here but we've read a lot of this over the last few years uh the ps4 was night and day in terms of development ease versus something like the ps3 which mm. you remember playing skyrim and having to like leave all your keys in one room before you walked into the other like things were that was that's a game that never actually really worked like ever <laughs> that was just and it worked pretty much everywhere else so that it's just that was just a, like a clunky difficult thing to work on and so as long as they make that easier i'm i'm happy for it mm -hmm. um what uh, strikes me as interesting about the timing of all of these announcements is this feels like a, a sort of like shot you know across to see who makes the next move Mm. Like this is, they are putting out a lot of tech stuff and there's obviously, this is very like rich in that, in that sort of like very finite detail of, of, of what this thing will be as a machine. But is Microsoft looking at this going like, oh, let's, 
you know, bump up the graphics on level four or whatever. Right. Like, are are they saying what now our next chess move is in January? Were they planning on putting out something this week and now they're zipping their lips? Like, that's I'm way more interested in that side of it. Like, the technical side of it is something I'll never truly understand. There are smart, far smarter, better people than that, smarter people than that. Um, I couldn't even say far smarter people right there. <laughs> smart farter. Far farter, daughter, daughter. Um, uh, and, and so I'm more interested in like, how does this sort of like this play out these next, this next year, this sort of, t- you know, back and forth. Well, and to that point, Microsoft is doing a similar thing, right? Where they're like announcing things, but not really announcing yep. things. And everyone's just like putting out feelers and getting closer and closer and closer. Yep. And there's going to be, it's going to lead up to that game of chicken of like, who says the price first? Who's going to pull that trigger and then what well, happens? Yeah, I, that's what I was going to bring up too because that's that's such a weird thing because I feel like with video games, video game prices have been the exact same price for 20-something years, right? We're so accustomed to games being 60 bucks. We've talked about this ad nauseum. Developers are finding other ways to make money using, you know, gambling. And we're <laughs> onto them. Microtransactions, we're onto you. Uh, but also, you know, paid DLC, content drops, like uh, additional story modes, stuff like that. Video game consoles are getting exponentially more powerful and thus one would think more expensive. Everything else in the tech space has gotten more expensive. Phones are ridiculously expensive versus when they first came out. But there is a sort of an understanding and an expectation that you never go above 500 bucks. Even 500 bucks, like people kind of look at you like you're crazy. But I don't, you can't buy a high-end gaming PC that does what, what this is doing for 500 bucks. And so... What are these things going to be co- like going to cost, and are people going to be willing to pay for them? But mm. to, to be fair, that's almost never been the case. You can like if you line up any console launch with its PC equivalent, the PC is almost always going to be insanely more expensive, right? Because they can work with very specific hardware, and they can work with manufacturers to develop these things, and they can take a loss, all right, on the hardware of the body. Well, that and N- Nintendo, like very publicly, is one of the only, and I'm not even sure where they are with that now, but they've been one of the only hardware manufacturers since ever that uh, don't sell their hardware at a loss. Right. Whereas people like PlayStation and, and Xbox make up that money in software and in video game controllers, peripherals, you know, knickknacks, yeah. USB mini cables. All that sorts of nonsense. Honestly, I'm more curious about the controller cost than the. Uh, we t- you talked about it. Matt. You mentioned it earlier, but I I'm so nervous that these controllers are going to be like eighty dollars each or a right? hundred. Yeah, yeah. That makes me so nervous. But I mean, but we we'll see. Like, will they be worth it? I mean, that's the thing. Like, this is the th- this is your this this is your tool to play the most incredible high end and occasionally exclusive video games in the world mm-hmm. to explore new worlds to to. Uh, you know, it's experience narratives like never before. And mm-hmm. we're like 40 bucks. And <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, well, well there's, there's also gotta be a push and pull there. There's the possibility that there's like, there is the sort of the big, there's the flagship controller. You yep. get one that it's shipped with. And then maybe they'll do like the sort of the 2ds approach where they're like, yeah, there's the dumb version. You can have the, the dual shock, you know, 4.5 instead of the dual shock like five. Whatever. It's like <laughs> exactly. No yeah. rumble, no kickstand. You can't dock it. Yeah. If you just want to push the buttons and not feel the, the coarse gravel under the Astrobot's feet or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, um, oh yeah, home screen will be more informational, multiplayer server info, single player mission details, etc. I I love the PlayStation 4 home screen. The only thing that really bugs me about it is when it occasionally chugs. But yeah, it, it's it hangs every now and then when you go to the store or you go to like your library and you go to download something and it's just like it sits there for five minutes. That's gotten better. Yeah. Um, 
around the middle of this generation, that was actually like infuriating. It like kind of chugged a lot and got hung up a lot. Um, but I'm mostly happy with that OS. Mm-hmm. I pop over to my Xbox One X and I'm like, I hate this OS. Like <laughs> I, I straight up, and that's like they've they've made incremental changes to that thing constantly, and I just don't like it. It just it feels both cluttered and empty mm-hmm. at the same time. Whereas on PlayStation, I kind of know where everything is, and I really hope I hope they don't reinvent the wheel there like there are some things i want like big shifts and then for the os like just gradual baby improvements there you know yeah nothing, i'm nothing too i'm with you on that i have all my folders i know where everything is my firewatch theme love it yeah changes the color of the mountains depending on the time of day seriously shout out to the firewatch theme if you needed the best theme for ps4 that's it right there i have the yakuza zero one that has like really loud typewriter noises whenever you move anything over and my wife hates it she's like that's too loud turn that off i've disabled (laughs) i disabled like all system sounds on my ps4 you open you open a folder it's like a gunshot it's (laughs) it's awesome (laughs) like one person dies in that game it's anyway um yeah, so in other news, uh, firmware 7.0 for PS4 is on the way. It's got remote play for Android devices, which is cool. Uh, and they're, I think, entering cross-play or cross-play is out of beta uh, for PS4, which is, you know, these are these little, little incremental tweaks we get right now. Well, the, cro- the cross-play thing is so funny to me because I didn't even really realize that they were calling it a beta exactly. Like, if you look back at their announcement, it was, but it sort of gives us an answer to all these moments where games weren't allowed to have crossplay. Like war the Wargroove developers famously called out Sony for yep. Sony being like, we'll let anyone have crossplay. And they were like, hey, you denied us. <laughs> um and this is Sony essentially being like, we're gonna stop doing that now. And that's really nice because now we're hopefully gonna see a lot of these smaller developers like Wargroove say, okay, we can we can actually do this now. We can get crossplay yep. out. And I'm really, really glad it went this way because there always was the chance that Sony was going to be like, you know what, we we don't like this. This hasn't worked out and pulled the mm-hmm. plug. And they didn't do that. And that's that's really nice. Uh, we did a poll on IGN asking people what uh, what games they wanted a sequel to the most. And everyone wants a God of War sequel very badly, which no. I'm, yeah, I could kind of see that. <laughs> uh, do you guys want to see that stick with the with the Norse setting? Or do you want to see it kind of, you know, dilly-dally around and go someplace else? I'd I, like, yeah, I'm down for it to go anywhere. I'd yeah. like it to go one more Norse and then go wild, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh I think it would be really cool to have it explore a ton of other pantheons. And I don't know, you know, if they can, they, they need to come up with good reasons for it. Cause I think one of the great successes of the God of War, the newest God of War is that it both rebooted in big air quotes, the series and didn't like, I really loved that this was a super fresh start and so connected to the original at the same yep. time. Um, and I, I think they'd need to, figure out a way to do something similar or strike that balance if they were suddenly like, hey, we're going to Egypt and now it's the Egyptian pantheon. That's that's a delicate thing to get right. I'm, mm. I'm like honestly way less concerned with the setting as much as I am like how do you recreate such an incredibly impactful, deeply personal story? Mm. You can't have Kratos' wife and mother of his child die twice. Mm. Maybe you can. I mean, but I, that's not up to me. That's, up, you know, Corey and, and friends get to figure that, that one out. And now they have to because it won our poll. And so, <laughs> and so that's Legally way, binding poll. Yeah, I'm way more concerned with that because that is like, that is a tough act to follow, man. That is like a yeah. very, very like gut-wrenching, heartwarming game that like made me, made me tear up at the end. And that like hit me at a really personal time and it was a really powerful game. And I... I don't honestly understand how you 
recreate that. I think moving it to Egypt is, is like secondary to me than like how do you how do you tell another story that beautiful? Right, which is also why I think that they shouldn't just make the jump immediately, right? Like I think I, I think this setting definitely has more life in it. Yep. Or they could go a crazy wacky way and have it be starting in Norse and then they go different places in the middle of it or something like that, right? Like it is yeah, it is not cool. stuck to one Just area. Ex- explore that universe. Yeah. Where well, you know, like in, in God of War you had jumping between the different yeah. the different realms. So yeah, what yeah. if one of those realms was Egypt and one of those realms was ancient China and yep. one of those realms was you get weird. You know, yeah, you get weird with it. And it, that's I think one of the ways you could do that, but I definitely don't want to see them just straight jump the shark to a different place. I no. hope they maintain the sort of open-ish world design. Yeah. I like that. I hope it doesn't get too big. Um, I actually love, I love, I love how that game was laid out. Yeah. The, the best thing I could hope with that sequel is that they just take their time and, uh, you know, don't, don't rush it. Yep. Uh, now we got some updates, uh, out of New York comic con about, um, Avengers. Uh, first of all, I Brian, we were at New York comic con. A lot of mm-hmm. people came up and said hello. So huge. Thank you to everyone who did that. That was wonderful. Uh, you went to the Marvel games panel and yeah. you got to absorb some details about that. Yeah. Um, that is a really like a constantly growing, evolving product, which I'm surprised to see. Cause I feel like they were like, this is the design and we're sticking with it. And then a few months later, they're like. Thor's hair is better now. <laughs> and like, I'm, I dig that. I think that like this is a this is an interesting audience who is very passionate about this, especially after you know twenty twenty three films, and so uh, they 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 want to see specific things. That said, comic books are a fascinating source material because they're all over the place, and there's you know decades of stories to tell. And I think this game is in this weird spot because it sort of looks like the movies and sort of sounds like the movies and sort of feels like the movies, but it isn't the movies. And they announced that Kamala Khan is essentially this new sort of like thing that brings the story together. She's like a kid from New Jersey and she finds out some dirt on this like government program called AIM, um, which is essentially building robots and science to save the world instead of using superheroes. And she connects with the Avengers after A-Day, which is where many of them get like beaten up and wiped out and they just get their butts kicked. And she's like this very essential part of the story. More importantly, seeing her gameplay was the first time I looked at this game and was like, oh, you guys know how to go and make like a big, goofy comic book game mm-hmm. like spider-man was so ridiculously fun and arcadey over the top and a lot of the stuff i've seen from avengers feels a little bit more reserved and kamala khan comes out and she's this like weird mix of like you know mr fantastic and like a little bit of sandman and she can make her hands giant and her arms long and she's this like funny punk kid and she's beating up dudes and like during like hurricane spins and all this other stuff and i was like oh this has like this has a lot of flavor for the first time. Like now I'm actually paying attention to like this game because now I can understand how it could potentially scale into getting bigger and more ridiculous, which I love. She's actually, uh, she's a good character to sort of act as like a, for the, for the player to take control of, uh, because it's, she's a, she's like an in-universe fan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's like an actual sort of, if when she goes to sort of meet, you know, these characters that we're all familiar with, you know, she's going to get excited about it. It's a good way to kind of be like, oh, you've got to get the get the gang back together. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they were actually at the end of the panel, which I missed because I had to run outside and shoot a video. Uh, they were handing out her comic books, which were like in-game items that she essentially designed 
tethered to the story. Oh, whoa. Where, like, she made Avengers fan comics <laughs> mm. as her character in the game, and they printed them in real life. And so, like, every, cool. all the items that, like, and merchandise they're doing around this game is essentially stuff that you could find in that world. Like, all the collector's edition yeah. stuff is, like, statues and toys based on stuff that you can actually or could be able to buy in a toy store in the Avengers video game, which mm-hmm. is really cool. But That's I didn't get that. I mean, strange. her role in this, uh, and they, they said that she's the, she said that, She's the main protagonist, which I think is like, well, you announce the game. I think the Avengers are the main protagonists. You know, it's like a game where you jump between them or whatever. But like, it's cool that it's sort of you get to see it through her through her eyes. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's going to be kind of the same way that uh, Spider Man was brought into the MCU, where it's like you get this young kid who's like he gets to be sort of excited on behalf of the audience. You know, yeah. and uh, I, I saw know. a lot of people were pissed off that like she's such a central figure in this because they're like. She's not part of the Avengers that I remember from the film a year ago. And it's like, well, this is like a wildly like d- different team every 10 years in the comics, every five years in the comics. And like the original Avengers had like the Wasp that was, she was like one of the first four. Like mm-hmm. it's just like, it, I, I don't know. There's no real canon here. And the more different they get from the Avengers movies, the, the more better. I'm excited about this. Same, game. same. This, the, like her story trailer, her trailer introducing Kamala Khan and, as Miss Marvel in this universe and in this game and like what she does, how she fights, all those things you were saying, that probably got me more excited for this game than any other trailer or piece of thing I'd seen for it before. Same. Not even really because of the character herself, because I've never read any of her comics. I'm not really, you know, I, I don't hate her or anything, but she's not like, she's not a draw on her own to me. Just the idea that they were going so different from what they originally showed and that's so different from what the Marvel films have done is infinitely more interesting to me than just, Hey, we're making a game based off of Robert Downey Jr. Right. Yeah. I mean that this is, this is way, way of more of a creatively exciting direction for me. No, it felt like everything we saw when this game was first revealed and we were like hot off the heels of Avengers Endgame, which was like, you know, sucked the life out of everybody because it was, 23 you know films of build-up or whatever 11 right. years was that this game looked kind of like it but not enough and didn't distance itself enough so it sort of felt like asylum films does yeah Avengers, like right. well, transmorphers or like the day the earth stopped all those like weird bootleg movies <laughs> i think they also like they revealed it way too soon yeah uh, and I think they were trying to really just kind of tap into the zeitgeist of everyone having just come out of Endgame. Yep. And they were like, hey, E3 is here. And you look at it and they're like, this game comes out in May, I think, of next year. Mm-hmm. So it means that they don't get a big E3, you know, knock the doors down. So they were like, you know, they they brought some stuff to Gamescom. They brought some stuff to Comic-Con. And it's also going to be one of those games that's probably going to get kind of long tail support. Uh, but I feel like the timing is just all kinds of weird because they they kind of pulled it out of the oven too early and... Uh, I mean, this is this is again. This is the first thing I've seen in the game that makes me kind of more interested in it because yeah. it's yeah, it's Kamala Khan. Uh, I like the character. The comics I've read of her is like I did not like. Um, one thing that's worth noting is she's. I think she's kind of a gamer, which mm. is which is funny. But the, what I hate is that in the comics I've read, they do that thing where they like they don't want to name drop existing games, so they like <laughs> make up like it's like War of Worldcraft, and I'm like, shut up, just say it. You're not gonna get sued. <laughs> just say the just say the thing. It'd be funny if she's playing like some like cheap Avengers game on her phone, like some match three puzzle game. <laughs> I like, love that. The Avengers are heroes in that world, and she's a big fan of them. It'd be really awesome if she's like sitting home drawing fan art, making comics, and like yeah. playing crappy Avengers video games. Like she Does runs Marvel like a, Puzzle League still exist in the yeah. Marvel Avengers? That'd be, you know, actually, <laughs> like, so I love when like you can play video games in video games. 
like there's an excuse for that. So that'd be really cool if like, I don't know, when you pick her character, you can pause it, pull out your phone and just like play Puzzle League. That would be, that would be ridiculous. Um, so in other news, uh, Concrete Genie is, is that out? Is that officially out or is that on almost out? We got a review up for it. Soon, yeah. yes, but we did review it. The review is up, but in better news, uh, Jonathan did an interview with the folks behind that. So we are going to toss the interview. Jonathan, take it away. Thank you, Jonathan, for what I'm sure was a wonderful, heartfelt, serious introduction. Uh, I am Jonathan as well, and I'm joined this week for a very fun special interview with Dominic Robiliard and Jeff Sangali of Pixel Opus. Uh, you guys are just releasing Concrete Genie. Uh, it's finally out for PlayStation 4 with PSVR support in there. We'll get to that uh, through the interview. First, I want to say congratulations to you both and to your team as a whole. Uh, Thank you. I know the game's been in development for quite a while, and it's it exciting has. to see it finally come to fruition after having gotten to play it myself, see it at various events and whatnot. It's exciting to have the full game out there for it people is. to play. This is a big moment for us. We have been working on it for several years now. Um, the team's just put so much love and affection and, and kind of passion and hard work into it. So we're all really excited to, to get it out there. If you don't mind, yeah, just get up right to the mic. That'll yeah. be fine. Um, so, Dominic, you are the creative director of the studio, mm -hmm. and Jeff, you are the lead art director. I'm the art director. Yes. Uh, and so I want to talk to you both, of course, uh, art being such a major part of Concrete Genie, both the gameplay and the story and the message at work. But maybe for those who don't know at home too much about the game or just have a general overview of it, can you both tell me sort of what Concrete Genie is in a nutshell to you guys and to the team? Yeah, of course. Um, so it's, it's a game about a boy who can bring his artwork to life. And so that's what all the gameplay is about. We've, we've come up with some unique mechanics that let you paint on all of the walls in, in Denska uh, and then all of the strokes and the, the, the brush marks that you make in the world come to life. And so a big part of the, the fantasy of the game is to try and make anybody feel like they could be an artist, no matter what your real-world artistic ability is. Uh, and then we also have some some interesting themes in the story as well. Ash is uh, being bullied, um, and he's also trying to bring his hometown back to life with all of this amazing painting that you can put on the walls as well. And in terms of, I want to sort of touch on all of that stuff, um, Ash's journey in particular, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit on why uh, the, he made sense as the protagonist in mm -hmm. terms of uh, his love of art and then what he's having to deal with with these bullies who kind of come in and make his life a bit harder yeah. than it might need to be. Um, well, I, interestingly, the, those parts of the concept were there from the very, very beginning. Um, when we started our creative process for, for beginning our second game, um, we did a bunch of team-wide brainstorms, and the original idea of Concrete Genie came from our VFX artist, uh, who's a guy called Ashwin, which is why our main mm. guy is called Ash. Um, and the very first piece that he drew um, to help communicate this idea was a, a painting of a boy being bullied, um, and he was drawing these huge characters on a wall and imagining them sticking up for him against the bullies. So those things were in the concept right from the very beginning. And then when he shared that with the team, it just inspired everybody, um, and it, it just led to a very, very productive period of prototyping, artistic development, and all of these things started to gel into something that we, we felt we would have something important to say about. Uh, and so it was all kind of there from the beginning, really. And I love how uh, the game and its art really brings along the messages in that story. But I did want to sort of ask how you settled on the artistic direction of this game in general. Obviously, um, you were mentioning a lot of that main story was there from the beginning. Was the art style much there at the beginning? Did it go through a lot of evolutions? How did that change? You know, it did evolve over time, but I'm, I'm 
very fortunate in that our entire art department, which is incredibly small, um, they, they all have the ability to actually create visual development. So um, just after Ashwin created that image, we all sort of started to create uh, visual development for the game. And right away, we sort of gravitated to artwork that looked like it had a sense of handcrafted quality to it. So um, we started to kind of research and look at stop motion animation and how you know there's an incredible amount of attention to detail in stop motion and and now with the technology we have we have you know very uh, realistic lighting within the game and we loved how practical lighting can yield some amazing emotional effects so um, we started to create artwork that was sort of in the same genre as stop motion mm -hmm. and, uh, and it sort of developed from there but we're really fortunate that we have sort of two two art direction styles within the game. We have the, the 2D world, which all of our genies live within the, within the walls of the city, and then we have the 3D city. We really wanted to make sure that, that the city itself became a canvas for the sort of uh, dynamic color and uh, luminosity of, the, of essentially Ash's imagination within the world. Uh, and two things from that. One, I do want to emphasize for those who may not know at home, uh, Pixel Abyss, you guys are first party within Sony. Mm -hmm. You're a bit of a smaller team than some of the other teams at Sony. You really are a, it's 18 people, I believe. Do I have uh, that right? Yeah, or? a bit less than that. Yeah. A bit less. Yeah. Um, and I mean this fully and openly. Another coworker of mine and myself said this almost the exact same time to each other as we were playing. This is one of the most beautiful games we've seen in a long time. The The art direction that you guys have brought to it is really incredible, and that, that balance between the 3D world and the genies is really fascinating and interesting, and I did want to talk about the genie design, too. I was wondering if you'd tell me a little bit about how that came about, because you do have to balance your artistic intentions with creating the genies as well as allowing the players to create them. So could you tell me how that... Yeah, well, we were definitely inspired by 2D, uh, you know, sort of like children's book illustration and classical illustration, also urban, mm. urban artwork. Mm urban illustration so that was from the start we were and also you know um that was an inspiration but we are also wanted to make sure that these things felt like they had scale within the world mm -hmm. and that they could kind of you know move along the wall and, and turn and walk around walls and so um that was something we were aspired to right away and then it took quite a long time to actually develop the the tech in order to mm -hmm. make sure that that lived up to our expectations so that we had multiple revs of making sure the genies really felt like they came to life. In fact, at one point we had sort of like a Pollock-like splattered paint that would come to life. We thought, oh my gosh, we should you know, try to yield it a, a nice outcome, but we thought, let's go even further. Mm -hmm. So it gave us enough time to have our engineering department come up with some propri proprietary tools where we can almost make them feel like they're, they're hand-animated. And that, that's what took the time. And then uh, we did literally hundreds of drawings. Mm -hmm. One of our <clears throat> character artists, Lansing, um, did uh, just hundreds and hundreds of different kinds of designs uh, to make sure that people would feel like they're, they're making really their own genies. Right. And um, there's quite a bit of tech under the hood, even with when you create a genie, how you illustrate it and what details you add affects the kind of animation that they run. So they have kind of unique personalities that that, uh, that come out of that. So that took time also. Was there a certain uh, philosophy you had in terms of how you wanted 
genies to act no matter how they were created um, mm -hmm. because each genie you can collect a handful as the story goes on. They all look very distinct. They all have their unique features and attributes. You can add your own attributes to them as well uh, with the collectible pages that Ash finds. But at the same time, they do all feel very much of a piece of yeah. Ash's art style. Um, can you talk about a little what the design philosophy specifically for capturing the genies was? Yeah, we, we um, you know, going through that iterative process, we, the one thing we always wanted to make sure is that they felt like they would either be your friend or, or bite you. So that's why they, uh, you know, they, they should all feel like they have an edge um, because it's okay to, to feel like sometimes they're scary or, or friendly. And uh, that way it really parallels what Ash might come up with his own imagination mm -hmm. um, and as a celebration of that. Um, but uh, I think that it was because we spent so much time iterating that we would take from that iteration would take the things we loved and uh, evolve that. And at the same time that was happening, the, the technology was developing. So in the end, um, we had exactly what we were trying to shoot for. Again, this is over a number of years. So it really took quite a bit of time. And then actually the, the color timing and the amount of luminosity is, is really tricky just to achieve because if they blend too much into the walls, you lose the animation and the character. And then if they stand out too much, it, it's also they, they, they don't feel like they sit properly. So that took a lot of time just to make them feel like they really are within the wall surface. Mm -hmm. And then they run uh, a complete set of AI, and they have uh, ballistic tracking, and they even have a full physics system that they run also. And then they interact with each other, and then they yeah. interact with the 2D world also. So... What you paint and draw, um, as far as the organic world, uh, will sometimes uh, interact with that. Well, and let's talk about that painting. I do want to get back to Denska as mm. a setting and the sort of contrast it makes with what you're drawing. But in terms of what you, as Ash, can create, can you speak to a little bit of, you were mentioning you want anyone who even may not feel like an artist to feel like an artist right. when they're playing this game, but you're still working within parameters as right. a player. Can you describe a little bit of how that system works? Yeah, of course. Um, so we, we actually evolved the painting mechanics over several years and we tried many different variations of them and it speaks a little bit to what Jeff was talking about as well that the amount of choice and freedom that we've been trying to give players as they paint has been really important to make the whole concept of the game kind of fit into place because when we started and you know some of those aspects early on were, were, were a bit limited um, it was kind of holding things back. And so it, it meant that we had to really invest a lot more time and effort into making sure that you had more freedom and agency when you're painting. Um, and the thing that we kind of quickly butted up against is how do we make it so that you don't have to be intimidated by it and you don't have to have any artistic ability to make something that looks good. Uh, and that was when the really kind of interesting challenge of trying to find how we take the marks that you make and embellish them just enough that you feel good and it looks awesome, but you haven't changed them so much that you don't feel like it's your artwork anymore. And that's this kind of very, very delicate line that we've had to balance on all of the, the kind of 60 brushes that you paint within the game. Um, and they're all meant to feel like a toy in a way. So we've tried to add a lot of um, variety in how they come to life, how they get drawn. Um, uh, a good deal of them respond to how much pressure you're putting on the trigger as well. So there's all kind of little nuances you can discover as you paint with them more and more. 
um, and we tried to make them like a fun toy to experience. And you know, that's the other thing is the the audio that goes into that too. So each one also has a unique musical instrument that plays with the brush as you're playing, and that's always in time with the music that may be playing in the soundtrack, and always in key. So you feel like you're contributing to the music of the game, not just the artwork in the in the walls as well. Um, and I I think that the the thing that we found and what that has brought to the game and the concept of it is that it makes you connected to the artwork it makes you care about it more hopefully it will make everybody's version of this game look different <laughs> which is really important to us especially for for the ability to share something or stream something you want yeah. to make sure that what you're doing is kind of personal to you um, but for the story the reason that's important is that you have to feel connected to to the artwork so that when all of these terrible things that are happening to ash um, you understand what that feels like because it's not just his artwork it's your artwork as well and so that's how, the, and the main reason that we wanted to take this this game on as a project was because we thought we could have something important to say about that actually within the gameplay, not just the story sequences. Well, and in terms of that gameplay, as you mentioned, Ash has so many different brushes uh, mm. that you collect throughout the game and have that ability to really make your version of that world your own. And mm -hmm. it's, uh, I love that you decided to leave the artwork that you create in the world. Yeah. So as you continue to progress through, it stays there. Right. Was that was that permanence uh, part of the game for a long time? Did that come in later? Uh, what's behind that decision? Um, talk about it. it did come in later. It was difficult. Mm -hmm. It's very challenging to, um, from an engineering perspective, to allow you to paint on any of the walls mm -hmm. and have it completely persistent for an entire playthrough, especially as each level essentially is building up the traversable space. We, it's not an open world game, but we, we think of them as kind of open neighborhoods. Yeah. And we want that kind of space to grow. So having that work and have all of your artwork up on every wall stay there mm -hmm. um, was, was difficult, but it comes back to that critical thing in the concept that you have to feel connected uh, to your artwork and you have to care about it. And so, again, it wasn't until we could deliver that that the whole concept <laughs> didn't really start to slot into place. And in terms of actually creating that artwork, want to get into the little bit of the nitty gritty of how mm. you do it. So it's when you want to start initiating Ash's painting, you hit the right trigger. Yeah. Um, you have the ability to undo with the left trigger, mm -hmm. but you can either, if you want to turn on and just have it be the right thumbstick. Uh, you can do that. You can do that. Mm -hmm. But the base version of it and the way I preferred playing mm -hmm. definitely is through motion. Yeah. And sort of, I assume, to simulate a brushstroke. Absolutely. Being the intention. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you landed on that yeah. sort of gameplay mechanic? Was that always how it worked or did you go through? We, we tried lots of different versions of that um, as well, right from the very beginning. Um, and the thing that we found, I mean, you know, as a gamer, there's a part of you that has some level of skepticism about motion controls. But the thing that we found when we tried it is uh, it worked perfectly for us almost from the very beginning um, with very little kind of tweaking and adjustment needed. So, you know, depending on how familiar you are with motion controls, it can take a bit of getting used to. But the DualShock is actually very, very sensitive and you don't need big motions to get it to work. Um, very, very kind of effortlessly and intuitively. So we've we've got a kind of tutorial section at the beginning <laughs> of the game where you go through some kind of um, very easy kind of painting exercises to kind of get used to using the cursor. Um, and that really was kind of put in after we've been doing lots of focus testing to try and make sure that anyone who comes to the game who isn't familiar with motion controls gets to kind of experience them and pick them up um, in as easy a way as possible. 
Um, and what we see now is that even if you aren't familiar with them or if you have any kind of anxiety about doing that, mm-hmm. once you've tried that beginning bit, you're like, oh, this is really easy. And, we, and we've had such great feedback on that from the trade shows as well, from people going, oh, this works so much better than I thought it would, you know. <laughs> um, and I, I just think it's really key to the intuitiveness and the accessibility of just doing that yeah. um, uh, and how anybody can kind of just feel like it gives you a bit of flair almost when you're playing it. <laughs> you, you know, you see people who are kind of a bit scared of it at first, you know, and then as they do more and more, they're just like, oh, this is so easy and it can make you do it very, very quickly. Um, and it allows us to navigate like a third-person action-adventure game with this extra kind of component to the controls without getting in the way of the way you're used to controlling a third-person action-adventure character. Yeah. Um, but that being said, if you want to use the right stick, you can find that option in there as well. We did quite a bit of studying of um, just actually producing traditional 2D frame-by-frame hand-drawn mm. animation so that, so that they're not stamps, but they're actual... Uh, Glowing animation mm. that mm. sort of comes to life with a brush stroke. So, yeah. um, and we have a quite a, a range of variety of different ways that that, that uh, manifests itself. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, we, we did a lot of kind of um, hand drawn research to try to create that feeling. A lot of those tweaks and flourishes that just talking about that we kind of developed with two D animation, they're driven by how you lay down those initial strokes. So one of my favorite brushes in the game, which you get early on, is the cherry tree. Mm. And depending on not just how much you're pulling down the trigger, but how quickly or how big the trunk stroke is affects how some of these things are procedurally generated on that that thing that you've painted. Uh, and the reason that we, we put that kind of time and effort into making it feel organic and like that is that it really encourages you to keep experimenting. Yeah. Because all those trees are different every time you do it, you know but they still retain the original core design that you lay down. Um, and so, again, it's kind of trying to thread that that kind of line really carefully with every single brush in the game. Yeah, I love the balance sort of of whether it's creating those trees or, for me, I always love uh, when you can create sort of the flock of birds and be able mm. to direct a general line of them and how they flutter out from there yeah. or, you know, even creating just something like a mushroom and controlling the size of it and scale. Uh, yeah. You really get to feel like you're creating your own thing but you're within certain boundaries, but those right. boundaries don't feel limiting. That's great. Uh, which I feel like would, seems to be the that's exactly what balance we're going for. Going yeah, for. That's great. Happy to confirm that. <laughs> um, no, yeah, it, yeah, there's an incredible balance between, oh, I'm making, you know, from a preset selection of mm. things, but at the same time, I know that wall is the scene I wanted to create versus right. the scene the game was dictating I created. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. And I, that's why we're so excited to have the game out and <laughs> yeah. see what people start creating and sharing and you know, we we um, we managed to get a photo mode in for launch. Yes, as well. yeah, which is great. And I did want to talk about that because your photo mode has sort of a unique aspect to it. Photo yeah. modes are, I think, one of my favorite things this gaming generation has given us. Me too. Uh, and finding the different ways developers play around with that is so much fun. You guys have a very specific way. Can you talk a little bit about? Yeah, that absolutely. Um, we, you know, we we had a, a bunch of different ideas for the photo mode, and we knew that for a game about an artist, it was going to be really <laughs> important to kind of. Um, embrace that and, and encourage it and support it. And so um, the thing that we really wanted to do, and I'm so glad we managed to get it in, is when you set up your your photo, your pick, um, and you have some of the, the kind of features that you would expect in there, like depth of field and field of view, once you've kind of established your frame, there is a, you can press a square button and it initializes a paint replay. Um, and what that does is look at all of the painted elements in that shot and fade them in one by one, um, emanating out from where the character is. So it looks very kind of organic, as if it's Ash kind of imagining what he's about <laughs> to paint. 
uh, and it feels like a time lapse of how you put that scene together. Yeah. And so with the share button, you can kind of very easily make a clip of that, share that, and we're, again, really looking forward to see what people do with that. Yeah, I, I love the ability to, I was at a particularly high point uh, in the city, and mm -hmm. don't want to say how that comes into play, but I was pretty high up and had the camera angled downward above Ash, and just seeing sort of the layers pop out and yeah. up back to life was awesome. great to see. Yeah, it's cool. um, I do want to get into the world itself, though, and mm -hmm. talk about Denska. Um, because when it starts off, obviously you're bringing all this creative artwork to life and it's beautiful and vibrant and bright. Mm -hmm. Denska is dark and drab at the start. Mm -hmm. It is sort of desolate and yeah. uh, run down. Can you talk about uh, what you wanted to achieve in making Denska and where that inspiration came from? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I will hand over to Jeff to talk about the, the amazing art direction there. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's a place that has befallen an environmental disaster. Um, we wanted to make sure that, you know, there are, there are a lot of themes and, and threads that the team cared about with this game and this kind of environmental theme was also important to them. Um, but we wanted to have something that was kind of sympathetic and running in parallel to what was happening to Ash in the world itself. So as Ash is dealing with his personal story and dealing with that, he's also helping revive um, the environment that is going through a similar situation. It's also being oppressed and kind of pushed down. Um, by what's happened there. And there's, there is a mystery there that kind of gets uncovered as you find out more as you go through the game. Um, and you do kind of get to discover the origins of that and what actually happened there. Um, but the reason it works well for the concept is that it gives you this, this kind of very um, melancholic canvas that needs your artwork and needs your paint to kind of um, sit on top of it. And so there's a great contrast there. Yeah, and we... we we spent a lot of time trying to make sure that the city itself uh, did not overpower the story about Ash mm. and, and the kids, uh, this group of kids. Yeah. Um, we did some previs early on of a large city, and it right away felt like, oh my gosh, mm -hmm. this is just overwhelming. So we, we kind of settled on you know, like a port town that's just, just big enough where you can really explore and find amazing areas that you can have just a moment to paint and enjoy doing that. Um, and then we wanted to make sure that the city itself felt like it was out of time. Like you really mm -hmm. don't know what time period this takes place. And we did that by designing all the vehicles. Everything is all from the art department's imagination. Um, uh, even all the signage that you see in the world are all hand-painted individual illustrations. So that was... Uh, that was challenging, but a, a lot of fun for us too. Again, kind of mimicking the handcrafted quality of stop motion, um, and then we're really lucky in that we we have the art department is very passionate about this game because the idea came from the team itself. Mm -hmm. So all of the environments in in Concrete Genie were, were modeled by uh, and textured by two just two people. <laughs> so it's, uh, just to give you an idea. It's crazy. <laughs> pretty tiny. That's a hell of a job they performed. They, they two did. people doing that. Um, yeah, I love what you were saying about the timelessness. It is, if you told me this game was in 2019 or 1919, I would believe you either way mm. about the way the city's designed. Um, yeah, that timelessness really comes through. Um, I was wondering, I, as soon as I said it, I didn't mean it to come off in any offensive way by sort of dreary i meant that mm. there's it does feel like this darkness to the world yeah uh, has kind of overtaken it was that yeah. was there a difficult balance on a creative level to creating something that does have to sort of have this level of oppression to it that sort of does have to be bogged down but also still distinct and visually interesting 
Is that a challenge or? Yeah, you know, I think, again, it goes back to, luckily we had enough time to really, you know, to be honest with you, we've created over a thousand pieces of 2D artwork <laughs> for the kind of overall production design of wow. the genie. So uh, we're, we're small, but very prolific. <laughs> and and um, I think through that process, we're really able to focus on the atmosphere and the shape yeah. of the city um, so that even though it is, uh, you know, dreary and overcast and it definitely has a thickness to the atmosphere, um, it still has uh, a strong shape language and, and points of interest in the world. And again, it's always designed to emphasize uh, an amazing canvas to explore, but also to, to create your, your own artwork. Well, melancholic can be mysterious, and mysterious yeah. can be a great call to explore. Yes. And that was the other yeah. thing that we kind of realized as we were tuning this, is that as you explore the kind of alleyways and streets of, of Denska and go through those different environments, that it can actually just be this, this really good draw in for the player to see what's around the next corner, but also to invite to make you want to paint on the walls and have this big impact, you know? Yeah, yeah. wanting to understand sort of what's around the next corner. What was mm. that building that seems to have been shuttered or right. possibly was a building or a home? It has kept me mm. going, like, let me see what's in each corner of Denska as I go through, which yeah. I love. But it does have that balance. I, I've been playing the game with my girlfriend, and whenever we get to a wall, she makes me stop and is like, can you paint on that wall? Paint on that wall. We need, <laughs> we need to bring life to the city. Yeah, that's um, great. And that's I love great. the way it encourages you to do that without telling you to do that yeah it, it really opens that up that was another thing that that took quite a lot um of tuning to get just right because um as we were quantifying progress through painting as we were developing the mechanics for the for the levels we had to make sure that we didn't judge your artwork because <laughs> it's not about that at all because that very quickly shuts down experimentation and kind of freedom of expression and self-expression um but we have to encourage you to paint <laughs> a certain amount you know uh, and that's where the light strands come from uh, yes. so so th those are a, a way for us to say we need you to paint here because your artwork is going to literally charge up you know these lights um, but we don't tell you what to paint specifically under the lights um, or how to do it um, and so you know th the other thing is is that as we watch more and more people play the game is that people use the designs the brush designs in so many different ways that we would never have been able to conceive of <laughs> Um, it just validates that decision not to try and you know judge how people are using those brushes because uh, we just get blown away by some of the more abstract creations that some people have the time and the patience to sit there even in the middle of a demo <laughs> on a show floor they'll sit there and they'll do something incredible you know um, and so that that's uh, that's another reason why it kind of took a lot of time to get right and there's also other things that happen when you paint. You know, you'll see dead foliage come back to life. Yeah. It's another kind of positive reinforcement that what you're doing is a good thing. Uh, and so little things like that we've kind of added in as we watch people play the game more and more. Yeah, there's a, a certain area of the game that when you do paint, it brings back very specifically to me in what would be a dank, dark mm. underground area. Yeah, the life starts to come back out from the floor. Yeah. And it was one of those moments of, oh, I'm not just putting something on the wall. I'm right. bringing this town back. Yeah. A certain way. Uh, I did want to talk about the mechanic decision one, not to really have much in the way of struggle as mm -hmm. you're going through the majority of the game. And then we can talk about the later part of the game. You basically, it's Ash trying to avoid the bullies. Mm -hmm. 
uh, is the big source of conflict, but otherwise it's you exploring the levels, finding where these light strands are to paint by them, and eventually making your way right. to progress through. Can you talk about why you decided to make it yeah. a less confrontational game? Absolutely. <laughs> um, getting the, the, the tone around that theme narratively uh, and trying to make it meld with the mechanics... Um, we d we went back and forth again on that, uh, and you know, and and where to find the correct level of challenge as you're going through. I think when you start unpacking it around the creative mechanics and the fact that this game is about the power of self-expression and creativity and all of that as our big kind of gameplay um, investment, everything falls out of the need to kind of keep that moving forward. And it is definitely a game that's more about the experience of going through it and kind of growing. Um, as you play the game rather than the challenge of dealing with that the the gameplay pressure that comes from the bullies where they kind of act as the thing you need to avoid um, there they'll, they'll give you a hard time if they catch you uh, and they'll ruin your, your artwork as well and you know and the way that everything kind of shuts down and dies when they're nearby that's more about delivering the the kind of narrative concept there as well but it is a legitimate gameplay pressure they will stop you mm -hmm. all your genies will freeze when they're nearby mm -hmm. so if if you need a genie to help you with a puzzle and the bullies are blocking that or if they're blocking a page you do need to kind of manipulate them um but yeah it's not meant to be a game that's going to stop people dead in their tracks over and over and again you know there are things in there that, that do become challenging uh, yeah. a little bit later on as well which i think is something we'll talk about um, but we've tried to balance it very carefully on what we think is a really fun, interesting um, kind of uh, intensity curve, you know, in the way that it does kind of grow and ebb and flow with the, the level progression um, and the general flow of the game. Uh, you, you do have that pressure, yeah, of, def of seeing a bully around the corner. Mm. But I, I love that the game also gives you the freedom to not feel like I need to paint in 30 seconds or they're right. going to come get me. You, there, there's a great balance there. There is. And we, we, we have... We have Dialed that up and down, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the the AI for the bullies is capable of making your life very, very difficult. <laughs> um, but it it can get frustrating quickly, um, and so that's something that we've tried to get just right as well. Um, they're there to kind of make their presence known uh, and to make you feel a little bit of what that character feels like when they're nearby as well. Um, but because Ash can't fight back, which is something that's so important to the narrative part of the game, um, you have to be very careful with, with how you kind of deliver that pressure in the game. Uh, and so Ash is very, very nimble and adept. The rooftops are his space, and that was one of the ways that we've kind of split that out and um, given him the ability to escape to the rooftops and get away from them very easily. So he's very nimble and agile. Um, they're very much the threat on the ground. Um, but you know they they do have ways of getting out there. But we we feel like we're we're really happy with with how that pressure is kind of netted out. You can't forget about them, which is really important as yeah. well. Um, but there's plenty of space and freedom to paint. We've also put lots of kind of safe spaces on the roofs as well. So when you do kind of escape from them and get out there, there's plenty of places to kind of just relax and kind of you know if you want to have a moment to just paint and and kind of catch your breath, catch your breath. Yeah. You can do that too. Yeah, I I love that balance and. You know, if people out there, once the game's out, I guess decide they want more of the bullies, just release a super expert hard mode and have people <laughs> yeah. challenge themselves that way. Yeah. Um, before we do get to that gameplay mechanic mm. shift, I do want to talk about, I did want to ask about the bullies a little bit more on both the character mm. level and the design level, mm. um, because they are not one-dimensional bad mm. guys in this game. It's not just, oh, the bad kids are out to get Ash. There's a depth to them, and yeah. there's a behavioral notes you start to pick up on the way they mm -hmm. react to each other. Can you talk about sort of the creation of them as a group and individuals? Absolutely. Um, 
right at the very beginning, uh, when we were, in, were kind of investigating the concept, when we were considering whether we would take on this, this narrative theme, immediately everybody on the team said, well, if we do go down this path, we have to have dimension to that and layers to that. And it can't just be presented as a, a one-dimensional kind of enemy in the game. Uh, and so that led to research. You know, we started looking into it ourselves, um, and we we agreed from right from very early on that all of these kids would have their own backstory. And it's a it's a bit of an abstraction. It's kind of condensed because it's only Ash and these kids <laughs> in this world, which is yeah. also very deliberate. This is of the kids. You know, this is their space. Um, but we wanted to make sure that we we tackled some of the common causes of bullying that we found on our in our research. And so. As with everything in Ash's life, his kind of emotional connection to the world comes through his artwork. Um, and so he, at the beginning, in the intro to the game, you see him do this beautiful sketch, which kind of turns into a 2D representation of how he remembers Denska yes. and what it used to be like before everything kind of went bad. Um, and similarly, at certain points through the story, when he and the bullies are both holding on to the brush, usually in a moment of struggle, it gives Ash this this kind of clairvoyant insight into what happened to that kid in his past that has scarred him um, and, and turned him into the kid that he's become. You know, we try to to imagine in this story that nobody is inherently bad um, <laughs> and that there is something in there that needs some sympathy and some understanding and some tolerance. Uh, and it was always very important for us from the very beginning that the story not be about Ash and our hero taking revenge on these kids. Um, but breaking that cycle of somebody who's bullied turning into a bully, which is the thing that comes up over and over again when you do look into it, and it's it's shocking, you know, but completely understandable in a way. Yeah. And so, you know, can we tell a story that is about breaking that and put something very optimistic and positive about that? Uh, and lots of how we present them um, with this kind of mix of of sympathy. Um, and also frustration because you feel that because that's why they're important in their gameplay execution yeah. to kind of push Ash around, you know. Can we do that in a way that will help other people come to a similar conclusion? And um, on the note of those memories, it does. It takes on a distinct art style yeah. uh, similar to that original painting. Can you talk a little bit about the decision to make a shift in the mm -hmm. art design for those memories specifically because uh, they're a little more abstract, but I feel like they capture so much in such a brief period of time. Yeah. Um, um, well, I'll, I'll let Jeff talk about um, the studio that we work with um, to do those. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the idea of this, this kind of 2D representation, it's very helpful to present the, the kind of nostalgic sense of memories through more abstract art and imagery. And so that worked really well for the, the opening flashback. Um, and we did that one first. And, you know, then once we realized how this really did feel like you were looking inside Ash's head, it's, it became a very powerful way of, of kind of doing that. Um, and so we thought we would use the same um, kind of uh, concentrated abstraction of that, of that language to do it for the bully flashbacks as well. And, and the, the, the decision for that art style... Um, you know, you, uh, you've definitely heard me speak about uh, traditional 2D hand-drawn animation is really an important part of giving things that attention to detail and handcrafted quality. And so we, we made that decision because it's, there's a certain emotional connection that you get when you see beautiful mm -hmm. animation. Um, and uh, we were lucky enough that Oddfellow Studio is here in, in the Bay Area. Uh, and uh, they were a great 
great to work with, mm. and they did um, a couple pieces for us. I'm looking forward to people you know seeing yeah. when, they, when they play the game. Um, and then even even Ash and the bullies faces in the in the 3D game um, uh, are all hand drawn 2D animation mm. also. Yes. And that way we really wanted to make sure again that people have sort of an emotional connection with the characters and and those those the drawings come right from our our animators um, who are also our character designers and uh, and do all of our storyboarding and so we have a small team, but there's a lot of ownership. So a lot of that uh, emotional connection hopefully comes through because it's just a small group of people that are touching these uh, pieces of art. It, it all feels um, authentic and emotionally honest to the experience as a whole. Like every facet of the game works together in that way. and really feels like it's in concert to this larger theme uh, and story at work, which that's I really so appreciate. That's so great to hear. I, that's, I think that's, whenever Jeff and I get to talk about what's our favorite thing <laughs> about this game, I think how well it kind of transparently represents the creative integrity of this team yeah. is probably our single most favorite thing about it. <laughs> it's, we can see every single team member in every pixel of this game. Uh, and as the story develops, you know, just through all of these handcrafted touches and it's, it's definitely one of the most rewarding things at this moment, you know, to kind of wait for that to get out there for everyone else to experience. Yeah, and and one of the things I'm personally having played so much of the game already, I'm excited for people to see, is this dynamic shift that you have in the story. Because mm. I would say there's a lot of brightness and hope that you put back into Denska, but the game can get pretty dark at points. And right. especially there's a, as you approach toward the later bit of the game, dark genies start to come into existence. Right. Um, and that also adds in a new gameplay element. Mm -hmm. um, and I know we've spoken a little bit about this before, but that more action-based combat mm -hmm. in the game, that's been there since the beginning of yeah. the design, correct? Yeah, it has, right since the very beginning. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those more unusual things in the game that we felt strongly about from the very beginning. And it's mainly because as we were developing those elements, the other elements, um, we knew that there was going to be a pressure that was building up from a player's perspective in the gameplay, but also in the story, that as you're pushed around by these kids um, and things kind of go from bad to worse, um, that that story needed a, a kind of journey that delivered on how serious the theme is. Um, and so once you've gone to that point, you know that there is a, a there is a pressure valve that needs to be let off there. But also we wanted to be really careful about how we resolved the story uh, and where how how does Ash and how do the player actually tackle what the real enemy is in this game? Because, of course, it's not about taking revenge on these kids that have been pushing you around. It's about dealing with the darkness itself. And so the back end of the game is really about personifying that in a very physical form that the player can then tackle directly. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's why the story goes to that, that place. And then from a gameplay perspective, we knew that by this point in the game, you know, you're going to have a certain amount of frustration um, that's part of the story uh, that needs a pressure valve to be let off. Uh, and so the more we develop this kind of slightly more uh, high, kind of explosive, uh, high-octane kind of end, you know, that's a bad word, but just something that felt more exciting and thrilling. It just felt really, really good to be able to let off steam. You know, one of the things that's happened through the, the, the first half of the game is we've really imagined 
um, creativity and self-expression as powerful things. You know, they're powerful abilities for Ash in this game. And so this is like a kind of ultimate expression of that, what happens, and your, your moveset change. You know, you're, you get a whole bunch of new abilities um, through the, this kind of final act in the game um, that really make that feel good and satisfying. And they let you tackle, the, like I said, the real enemy of this game, which is the darkness and the negativity, um, and kind of win that fight. And I, I love the way you're able to personify the themes within the gameplay itself. Mm. Um, and one aspect of that I do want to touch on before we wrap up is uh, the fact that you also have some VR included modes in this yeah. game, which uh, I think tie into what we've talked about of wanting people to feel like they're an artist, mm -hmm. even if they themselves don't consider themselves an artist. Um, yeah. So could you speak a little bit about what those modes are and how they're different from the base game? Absolutely. I'm, I'm so happy with how the, the VR experiences have, have turned out. So when we, again, when we were pitching the game, you know, PSVR is hugely important to the company. And when we pitched the game, um, as you would expect, instantly there was a request for, can we have a, a PSVR <laughs> part to this? You know, it's a painting game. What a great fit, you yeah. know? And uh, we thought, oh, God, that would be amazing. Um, but we, we didn't have the capacity. At that point, there were only, I think, 11 or 12 people on the team. Um, and so it led us to be able to start talking to some people that we've worked with previously who who were still here in the bay area and uh, we reached out to jeff brown and uh, dave smith who were people that we worked with previously and um they they came in and they looked at the game and they were really uh, excited and passionate about it but they came up with this amazing pitch for what they would do if they had the chance to to work um uh, work with a vr version of it you know, what if you could actually step into one of your paintings, go into the world of the genies, and then have that kind of liberated through the freedom that you get with VR and turn into a kind of 3D painting version of Concrete Genie? Um, we were so blown away. Um, you know, we, we, we spoke to our bosses, uh, San Mateo, Ken Ninagaki, and, and Connie Booth, and said, hey, look, here's an amazing <laughs> idea for a VR version, and we've got two amazing people. Can we, can we start a new team here? Um, and so we, we began the process of, of building a new kind of VR <laughs> incubation group, and they've been sat next to us um, working on that for the last couple of years as Amazing. well. Yeah, and that's where those two modes came from. And uh, those modes, was it difficult to, because you are, I've gotten a chance to play with them uh, both before and as the game's coming out, um, you are in that 3D space now of mm. uh, the genies, and you're able to paint what you're able to paint in the campaign in a... a sort of a new platform. Was mm. that difficult to, one, have the artwork stay true to what you have on a 2D plane? Was it difficult to have some of that stuff have a 3D sense to it? Can you talk a little bit about the art design carrying through from the base game to the Yeah, VR? you know, one of the main reasons that we, we wanted to make sure it was done properly was to get VR experts in. Mm. And so, you know, Jeff, um, uh, Jeff in particular had been working for several years at the Oculus Story Studio. Um, and so he was very... Um, on the cutting edge of a lot of those those techniques and those things that you would have to do to make that transition work. Uh, and then as he's built the team as well around them, they've managed to get other people who are very experienced in VR. And so very quickly they knew that they would have to kind of build custom spaces and versions of the locations. And there's two modes in the PSVR. There's a, there's a kind of more narrative-driven experience. Uh, and then there are also a handful of free paint uh, zones where you get to use the brushes that you found in the main game, but go to different locations um, that you'll recognize from, from when you've played through. But they've all been built custom from the ground up. So they, okay. they, 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 
I'm, they, they will look exactly the same, um, but they've been very carefully crafted to work from that first-person painting perspective, which has all come from that team. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, two quick things before we wrap up. First, this wonderful creature on the table with us. Uh, th this is sort of emblematic of the genies in the game. How did, how did this particular creature come about? Can you speak to his history? Yes, I can. It's history, excuse me. Yeah, well, one of, one of the fun things about working in, uh, in PlayStation headquarters is um, there's a fabrication department. <laughs> and so we get to work with this amazing guy called Gary Bath, and uh, he gets to make wonderful things for all of our first-party products. Um, and uh, when he saw Concrete Genie and we said, hey, can you, can you help us? He managed to find uh, somebody to build these kind of hand, handmade one-off prototypes. <laughs> um, we may be trying to get a few more made if there is demand and people want to, to buy them. You never know. If I, I expect them in every home by Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's very cool. He's posable and everything. So That's amazing. If we hear enough uh, demand on Twitter, hit us up on Twitter, then uh, we'll, we'll see what we can do. It's really fun if uh, if his, he's in a low light uh, situation. He glows in the dark too. Kind of neat. We should have done this interview in the dark. And just have <laughs> to right. stick That's out. Right. Uh, and the last thing you, Jeff, you had mentioned there are thousands of pieces of artwork um, sure. that you created in the process of making this game. You and the team. Um, one, some of that stuff is available as you uh, unlock some of it in the game uh, via ways I don't want to spoil for those who haven't played yet. But two, do you have any plans to use that artwork in any way going forward? To I, I'll, I'll be the first to buy an art book. <laughs> if you have it. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, we're, we're lucky that um, we're working with Dark Horse. Yeah. And we're going to have an, an Art of Concrete Genie book, which, uh, which really is a great story of, of a lot of what we've talked about today, mm -hmm. showing... You know, loose sketches all the way to our our kind of more developed drawings, and it shows some of the the, the dev process. Yeah, that we we, we tried to put it together. I mean, it's it's really a, a kind of affectionate testament to the art that was done, like Jeff said. But we we carefully kind of pieced it together to help tell the story of how the game was made as well. Yeah. Uh, and there are hundreds and hundreds of <laughs> images in there that show how the game came into existence. Uh, and it's all from the team as well, which is amazing. And I think that gets released at the beginning, early in December. Gotcha. Uh, and then in the meantime, if you want to find out more about the artwork, if you buy the digital deluxe version of the game, there's a really cool digital art book that has a subset of those images. Uh, it also has some of the 2D animations, the previs. So there's a lot of the kind of early development that 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 is fascinating for us at this end point to look back and see how much of the feeling was there right from the very beginning from these kind of very kind of rudimentary sketches, but you can still get a great feeling for where it all came from. Yeah, it's, uh, I've definitely, every time I unlock a piece of concept art mm. in the game, I pause, I need to look at it. It's all beautiful and just being in that world is beautiful. Uh, Jeff, Dominic, thank you so much for your time today. I genuinely mean this. Concrete Genie has been one of my favorite experiences I've played this year. It's, oh, wow. It's heartwarming it's and earnest in a way that not every game is these days, but it's... It, heartwarming in a wonderful way and it's a joy to play so thank you both and thank, thank you, you both for taking thank the time uh, i'll throw it back to jonathan concrete genie is now available for ps4 with psvr support so hope you get to play it out there if you have a chance and enjoy the rest of the show everyone who knows what brian and max are up to probably something silly thank you jonathan i'm not you because you're not here but i am hosting i'm doing okay at it i think Seven out of ten. I Seven out of ten. A solid rent, don't buy. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, let's talk about what we're playing. Tom, you're always playing all sorts of stuff. Are you playing anything that you can talk about? Uh, I'm playing... I've been playing a ton of Slay the Spire lately, which uh, 
full disclosure, Humble Bundle, who own is owned by Ziff Davis. Ziff Davis owns IGN also. They publish it, I believe, on Switch and whatever other console is it's on. I believe it's on PlayStation 4. Anyway, I've been playing a ton of Slay the Spire. Another game I played through this weekend that I wanted to, to quickly shout out was called The Bradwell Conspiracy. Oh, yeah. That comes out this week uh, from published by Bossa Studios, developed by A Brave Plan. Bossa Studios are the people that did, like, I Am Bread and Surgeon yep. Simulator. So this is, like, a little bit out of their wheelhouse, but they're publishing it. It's... um. Kind of like a portal-ish, adventure narrative puzzly game uh, where you have sort of two main methods of puzzling where one is a 3D printer where you can absorb this matter and then reprint objects and you use that to like get across gaps or solve uh, spatial puzzles. What's this game called again? The Bradwell Conspiracy. Okay. And then the other way is your voice is hurt in like an explosion, so you can't talk, of course, good excuse, but you have these AI glasses on, so your AI and your glasses are talking to the whole time, and then you're also working with this other person on the other end of an intercom named Amber, and you can talk to her by sending her photos, so you can press a button at any time and take a picture of your screen, and then she'll respond to it. And there's a lot of times, this was like a little bit of a disappointing part of it, is that there are a lot of times where she'd be like, oh, I'm not sure what you're trying to tell me, and it's just sort of like... It's a little lame, but there's so much stuff in this game that you can take pictures of and get a custom-feeling response to. I like that. Like, there's all these books all over the the facility, and you can take a picture of a book, and she'll, like, tell you about it a little bit or, like, make some funny quip. And Amber is, like, the voice acting is really good. The guy, I don't remember the, the voice actress's name, but the guy who does the voice of the guide is the guy who did Bayek in Assassin's Creed Origins. Oh, awesome. oh wow. It's he was like, good. really yeah. good, top-notch voice acting. Uh, and her kind of quirkiness and her likability makes the game so much fun to just be in. She is such a funny, weird character, and yeah, it, it, is it's it a, a is it a funny game? It's like, pretty funny. It's but not, it's not it's not like Surgeon Simulator. Or I am bread. It's like a more no. It, it's think of it. Think of it. It's a similar in tone to like a little bit of a less slightly less comical um, like Portal, right? Okay. Where it's like you're in a dark situation, you're in a serious situation, and there's like definitely some intense things going on. But you have a companion with you who's just keeping it lighthearted and making jokes the entire time, and that's a really good way to pull you through. On PC, where I played it, a little bit buggy, a little bit messy here and there, but uh, it's definitely a cool one for people who like that genre. Sweet. Nice. Yeah. Next, you and I played Predator Hunting Grounds. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That that's, uh, that's coming to PS4 sometime next year. Yep. It's weird because Sony is like co-publishing that. Yeah. Um, the PlayStation booth at New York Comic Con was essentially just Iron Man VR, which is also getting new content, um, and a... Uh, the actual main boss or, or sort of villain, which is Ghost from Ant-Man and the Wasp. And um, the other game was Predator Hunting Grounds, which is just like a weird... So if you had shown me in the 90s, like the new PlayStation games are Iron Man and Predator, I'd be like, yeah, PlayStation rules. It seems like <laughs> an, odd, it's an odd thing right now because we've come to expect sort of these like these like AAA bangers from a PlayStation booth at an event. And like yeah. Last of Us is far enough off and Death Stranding. I think they just had a demo behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the deal with that game is that it's it's too like technical and unfamiliar to just put in people's hands, in this, which is the same way that like, you know. It's a good theory. Yeah, like it's you kind of. People are like, I'm having a bad time because I don't know how to play this. And like, it's the same thing you see with a lot of RPGs where it's, you kind of, it's, it's hard to demo if it's like a, a game that takes three hours to get the hang of. Yeah. Uh, but Predator Hunting Grounds, on the other hand, is a, I would say this is like a decidedly double A game and not in a bad way at all. Yeah. Um, it's, 
Uh, it's developed by uh, Ilphonic, who mm-hmm. did Friday the 13th. Yep. Uh, which it's a similar idea where they took a beloved, uh, gruesome franchise in which a cool thing kills a bunch of less cool things and everyone gets to play as those things, the cool things and the uncool things. In this case, as opposed to Camp Counselors and Jason Voorhees, it's a Yautja Predator Hunter and then a bunch of like you know military dudes in the jungle. Yep. The Predator uh, is a original design. It's new. Um, I think... They wanted to kind of create their own world there, but the setting is tremendously evocative of the sweaty jungle setting from the first Predator <laughs> movie, which is great because like the untrained eye just sees really awesome space uh, Rasta lizard, and then they see the mm-hmm. wet jungle, and they see a bunch of like marine men running around or whatever, big big art, the big boys with the guns, and you're like, yep, this is the Predator game I've always wanted. Uh, so we got to play, which is really cool. I uh, I played it as a Predator, and Max played. As- I kicked your ass. You didn't kick my ass. I kicked. I helped kick your ass. The team kicked my ass. Well, my team kicked your ass. I don't know if you could take credit for it. Fine, specifically. But I got. I got some kills. Yeah. Um, so I played as a predator. It's a really good time. Uh, you mostly stay jumping around the trees, and you feel like this. It's weird because you're like this big clunky deadly thing covered in bizarre technology and whimsical apparatuses that shoot lasers and rockets and such. Uh, but you're pretty graceful in the way you can actually bounce through like nimble branches and stuff like that. <laughs> How did it feel to compare it to like an Assassin's Creed game? Um, definitely a little bit jankier, but like I I think that those games are I've always been a little janky too. Kind of like AC three ish. I was, I was of, watching yeah. somebody else play and like running on the branches was yeah. like it looks it, it's like a realistic jungle, but like the traversal is like clearly on certain set paths. Yeah, and you don't you're not always clear of where you're trying to go next. It definitely feels a little frantic the game is definitely still early they're still working on it but um the thing that i didn't really think of is that you're as a predator supposed to hunt which doesn't mean like hit the ground and be kratos like you really can't just like run around on the floor Mm. with your big ass feet thumping around (laughs) making all this noise your tivas yeah for the call of duty boys to hear you yeah be careful yeah so you have to be up in the trees and you have to cloak yourself you have to pop on your like heat vision and the cool thing is that like the soldiers on the ground are fighting each other they're not just all like looking for you they're dealing with their own fire fights and conflicts and such and so you start to see their heats flare up from their guns and their nozzles and their sweat and you jump down there and you start killing them. And so I would occasionally get greedy and hit the ground and just start meleeing like four or five boys in a row. Can you? And they'd all come after me. Can you <laughs> melee the uh, the enemies like the, the AI? I believe you can. Okay. Yeah. Or, I, was, or not I mean, melee, I was. Can you kill them? Whatever. I was really just trying to kill anything that moved. That was okay. my whole. I'm like a hunter, you know, like okay. a predator. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the. Uh, yeah. So I got to play as basically one of these these army military yep. dudes, and it's a uh, pretty standard like four person squad. There are four classes. It's like assault, uh, scout, sniper, and uh, close quarters. And basically everyone just play, picked assault because it's like easiest to pick up or whatever. Yep. But um, you have uh, like you have a quick heal and a grenade and you know a sidearm, and it's like very like feels like very boilerplate shooter. But what's cool about that is it's. Like if you if you jumped into this game not knowing it was a predator game, they'd be like, "All right, go to the you know the cartel outpost and hack their servers and do the objectives." And it's very like standard. Go to point A, go to point B, do the thing. But then, sort of spontaneously in the midst of that, and in, in little firefights with like with AI bad guys, the predator shows up, which is like such a wonderful kind of like curveball. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, I knew it was a predator game, so that wasn't a surprise. But like 
at which point the predator would show up, I wasn't really thinking about that. Yeah. Um, and Friday the Thirteenth is a game. You know, you start that game and you're just people are you're teenagers. You're hanging out and it's like you got to start the car and get off of Camp Crystal Lake or like you got to figure out how to use the electric the generator to electrocute Jason or whatever the hell it is. They're like very. Like those are very survival based objectives, which are kind of like I feel like they're just sort of boring. Like if Jason wasn't there, what would you be doing? You'd be like camp counselors trying to like get to second base or, you know, do drug stuff in the bushes. Like in this case, you have like a primary objective and it's to shoot the bad guys and like blow up the server and do all the do all the military guy stuff. And so when the predator shows up, you're like you're kind of keeping busy. Like you've got multiple things to juggle, which is like that feels like properly asymmetrical to me. Mm. Uh, and I was thinking about this, like uh, obviously one thing people compare it to is Evolve, which had you know, you're running around on this map and there's like the monster running around there and, and, and there's uh there were all those like like sort of AI controlled like wildlife enemies out there which mm-hmm. you could you could fight and kill, but they didn't really feel like a point to it. Yeah. It felt like, oh, you can get up extra bonuses or whatever. But in this case, uh the predator is like hunting people and trying to, you know, trying to kill the humans who are who are playing. But the humans are like trying to actually get a job done. You're trying to yeah. like take it's, down this. It's also like yeah. that, that world is inherently more interesting because I've seen great and also terrible movies based on it. yeah it's also you know, it, whereas evolve is just yeah like yeah. A, just just the thing that i never connected with. no but i mean predator also has been like a ripped off left and right by video games so it's kind of cool to see like uh, a video game come along and and be like let's um let's try to you know repurpose some of these things and, and make a you know yeah. functional predator no, game. It was really so, fun. I, I can't yeah. play more it was a good time uh i'm also back on my seasonal bloodborne binging that Ooh. i do yeah um this is, I always get sort of like, I kind of get in a funk when it starts, you know, the days start getting shorter and the, you know, fall rolls around and Bloodborne's also perfectly wonderful for spooky time, pre-Halloween nonsense. So Don't I'm, they do like an October event every year too? Yeah, they're doing, that, that's such a funny little community. Like mm-hmm. I think they're all getting together and they're going to like go fight the pumpkin or the, the spider together. So I don't know <laughs> what they do. They're going to knock over a bunch of books and do somersaults into some funeral urns. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I'm honestly okay. wondering when I'll ever finish that game because I just take my time with it. Like I just enjoy poking around in that world, and I'll like mm. periodically text Brian. He'd be like, "Brian, I got to the castle. <laughs> and I'm like, fighting mosquito women." He texted me. He's like, "I made it to Kanehurst Castle." I'm like, "Watch out for those garbage men on the front lawn. Avoid I lo- them. go inside I lo- the house." I literally like, "Be careful on the lawn. Get in there." And I was like, "Okay." I'll- <laughs> also, I like that you refer to that as a lawn. That game does not have a lawn in it anywhere. That's not like, a. What do you call the front of a castle? A- Moat? The courtyard? I don't know. Yeah, lawn. courtyard. It's not a. It's not a lawn. No, a courtyard in, implies that people enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Fair you enough. Have monsters on a courtyard. That's yeah, like okay. A okay. All That's right. It's like having a monster in a gazebo. What do you? I don't know what you think a courtyard is. A lawn is a good place for a good beast. <laughs> okay, that's fair. A good haunt. Uh. Anyway, uh, Jonathan wrote in that he's uh, playing Concrete Genie and Ukulele in the Impossible Air. Both great, both reasonably affordable, and both a refreshing change of pace, which is good to hear. Um, I started Ukulele also. I'm very early on, but I really dig it. Yeah. I'm looking for like a Donkey Kong Country style 2D platformer. I think those games are so interesting because it's like there's Donkey Kong Country, which was basically like the weird diagonal from Super Mario World. Which then led to 3D platforming from Rare, where we got Banjo Kazooie, which led to Ukulele, which is a 3D platformer that was kickstarted to be sort of evocative of original Banjo Kazooie, to Banjo Kazooie or Ukulele and the Impossible Lair, which is kind of like Donkey Kong Country. So they've now made two cover albums of like their greatest hits, and I'm all for it. 
Yeah, that's cool. Those guys. It's also I I imagine probably a little bit more of a linear process to make a a 2d game versus Mm -hmm. a a 3d one you know yeah this is also like this feels like bonus dlc for anybody who kickstarted ukulele because like they didn't do a kickstarter for this no they launched i mean those people kickstarted studio yeah that that will continue to make these games which is is rad uh on that note i think we're gonna wrap things up here we've all got stuff to do and uh hopefully jonathan's dog feels better um seriously i hope loki's doing okay that's that's no fun uh and i don't know where i don't know where lucy went but she's been coughing a bunch too so she might also be a victim of the dog diarrhea uh tom thank you for joining us thank you for coming on here thank thank you yeah you made Uh, me grimace right at at the end there yeah that's what we do it's it's a fun it's a fun time is there anything people uh, you've been working on people can go check out you want to plug that at all uh i don't know man yeah not really okay i I don't do much around here that's fair yeah uh no, I I I did a review of the Switch Lite that no one will care about here. So I I don't know. I'm just really well. Busy. It's kind of like we're going into yeah, <laughs> we're going into uh, November and October. So I'm mostly busy like editing reviews rather mm. than writing them or doing that sort of stuff. That's no fun. Yeah. Well, hopefully you get to review a fun game and have a nice time. But uh, anyway, you can find Tom on Twitter. He's Tom R. Marks. You can find me on there, Max Scoville. Uh, Brian is Agent Bizzle. Yep. Um, Brian, anything you want to plug? No, we did some cool stuff at Comic-Con that's still trickling out. Yeah. So look out and for that. We're working on getting up at noon back up off the ground now that we're not going to trade shows every other at week. At the very least, we'll be doing a Halloween episode. It'll be so. very spooky. Mm. One of the spookiest ones yet. Uh, anyway, uh, thank <laughs> you all. They all scare me. It's a very frightening program. Uh, anyway, thank you all for watching and listening and tolerating my uh, awkward, frantic last-minute hosting. Uh, it's Jonathan's fault. Bye. <laughs>